In our sermon series, we're seeking to begin the year with intentionality and somewhat counterculturally. It's very easy for us um, at times in our life, particularly as Westerners and particularly as Americans, seeking to pursue this elusive dream, um, to want to and have a proclivity uh, to these ideas where we just want to become better people. And there is a proclivity uh, among presenters or pastors, speakers at this time of year uh, to give you something in the realm of seven steps to a better you in 2019. And uh, I'll just be honest, I'm incapable of doing that. And so what we're seeking to do instead over these three weeks in January thus far, this being the third, is to consider something that I believe is central to what it means to be a whole person. So maybe that's really the idea that the calling and our goal is not necessarily to be a better person, but the goal and our calling is to be a whole person. And in order to be a whole person, the more we look at the scriptures, something that we see over and over and over again is this concept and this idea of rest. It's a literal physical rest that we're called to, but it really originates internally within our souls and within our minds, and within our hearts. Spiritually speaking, we need rest. We need emotional rest. We need relational rest. And yes, we do need these things to be manifested in physical rest. And you know what's a testimony to that? Every day when we wake up. C.S. Lewis says it like this, The real problem of the Christian life comes where people do not usually look for it. It comes the very moment you wake up each morning. All your wishes and hopes for the day rush at you like wild animals. And the first job each morning consists simply in shoving them all back, in listening to that other voice, taking that other point of view, letting that other larger stronger, quieter life come flowing in, and so on all day, standing back from all your natural fussings and frettings, like coming in out of the wind. That's what I want this series to be. I want this series to feel like to us as if we're coming in out of the wind. Because the reality is, internally, we live seemingly with a constant gale force of wind in our hearts, in our minds, in our emotions, in our relationships, and even in our spirituality. And I would simply say, that's not the way God intended it. God built our souls for rest, and specifically, He built our souls to rest in Him. And the more I talk to you, the more I look at you, the more I think about my own life, we're really dying for the rest of God. And He gives that to us in various texts. We've considered two already, and this morning we'll consider another one that in many ways I believe is a seminal text on this issue, but not only on this issue of rest. This is a seminal text on what it means to know God, and what it means to walk with God in rest. If you will, stand with me 
As we look at John chapter 15, as we hear Jesus directly speak to us this morning, starting in verse 1, John 15, I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. Already you are clean because of the word I have spoken to you. Abide in me, and I in you. The branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine. Neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers, and the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire, and burned. If you abide in me, and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. But this, my Father, but in this, my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in His love. These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be full. This is the gospel of the Lord. Pray with me. Father, we pray this morning that you would show us your truth, and that your truth would set us free. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. I want to be rich, and I'm not sorry. I want to be rich, and I'm not sorry. Was the headline of an op-ed in the New York Times about a year ago. The author went on to write, My definition of success is, I want to be rich, and I'm not sorry about it. I decided I could not consider myself successful unless I was somebody powerful. Somebody nobody could hurt. Success became a means to wrestle back control. Literally, to increase my personal value. There is a metonym for that. Money. Success for me is synonymous with making money. What is success for you? What do you consider to be your identity? What for you is achievement, is productivity? Where do you rest ultimately? Where do you find your sense of power, your sense of control, your sense of approval? Where do you find these things? What drives you in general? More specifically, what drives you to be successful? To make a name for yourself. To make yourself known. To find your way in the world. Where do you fit into the fabric of our culture? And what threads make up the fabric of your life? Another way of asking this would be what are you pursuing? What do you want? What is your legacy going to be? What do you want 
your legacy to be. David Brooks in 2015, also in the New York Times, wrote an article in which he distinguished between resume virtues and eulogy virtues. Think about that. Resume virtues and eulogy virtues. How do you define success? What do you want? What is productivity to you? What legacy are you leaving? What resume are you compiling? What virtues do you pursue? Resume virtues or eulogy virtues? You see, we're all tempted, not unlike the way that Christ was tempted actually in the desert, in the Gospels. Henry Nouwen, one of my favorite writers, takes on this story and rephrases it on some level saying, Jesus was tempted in these ways, and in the ways that Jesus was tempted are the same ways that we are tempted on a daily basis. Essentially, Henry Nouwen says, Jesus was tempted in the desert to be spectacular, to be powerful, to be in control. Aren't those our great temptations? It's hard to admit. Sounds a little egotistical. It's definitely narcissistic. But truthfully, in any sphere of life, no matter how humble it might appear, chances are we're tempted to be spectacular, powerful, and want control. And the ultimate litmus test of that is praise from others. But interestingly enough, when we look at the Scriptures, we're not called to be spectacular. We're not called to be powerful. We're not called to be in control. What are we called to do? What is our legacy to be? What are we called to pursue? According to John 15, it's pretty simple. We're called to be fruitful. John 15 is a proclamation where Jesus is saying, this is what you're called to, fruitfulness, which would be synonymous with faithfulness, which would be helpful for us to understand or engage this question. Are you more concerned with being successful or are you more concerned with being faithful? Are we more concerned with being successful? And I'm talking about in any sphere. We want to be successful relationally. We want to be successful socially. We want to be successful vocationally. We want to be a successful parent. We want to be a successful student. We want to be a successful athlete. We want to be a successful Christian. But interestingly enough, that's not what we're called to. And our definition of success is problematic, to say the least. But what we are called to, in the midst of cultivating this rest before God, is we're called to fruitfulness. And what if fruitfulness was our legacy, as opposed to success being our legacy? It seems that fruitfulness would manifest itself in eulogy virtues, Because the first eulogy virtue that David Brooks mentions is humility. What if your desire simply was to leave a legacy of humility? 
But we're drawn so often to want to leave other legacies. We want to be successful. We want to be productive. Henry Nowen uses an interesting term that I had not heard before. I read some of his material where he defines what real fruitfulness is. And he says, fruitfulness is connected with this concept and this word named fecundity. Henry Nowen talks about fecundity. And he says, fecundity is fruitfulness And it's to be distinguished from productivity. Because he's getting at the reality that so often we confuse being fruitful, not only with being successful, but we confuse being fruitful with being productive. And I think his distinction is so helpful. He says, real fruitfulness that's encapsulated in this concept called fecundity is something that happens to us. Productivity is something that we do. Fruitfulness is something that is done to us. Productivity is something that we do. And you see, that's the heart of the gospel, and that's the heart of Christianity, and this is where we get so confused so easily. Unfortunately, we typically understand Christianity primarily about what we must do. And so then we carry this cultural dynamic into the Christian life, into our relationship with God, because we live in a meritocracy, and it's all about us. And so we think knowing God is about what we must do. And we miss the good news of the gospel, because the former is simply good advice. But the good news of the gospel is Christianity is primarily not about what we must do, but what what Christ has done. And the gospel puts a premium on being, not a premium on undoing. The gospel puts a premium on fruitfulness, not on productivity. So here, let's start to entertain this question. Are our lives fruitful? Because you see, fruitfulness is where it's at. Fruitfulness is what John 15 is talking about. Fruitfulness is the call. But it is an elusive call. Because some of you In fact, all of you to one degree or another, and some of you more than even others, are so naturally gifted in general that that giftedness in your life can become confused with fruitfulness. Think about that. Could it be that your life is teetering on, or maybe it's even over the edge already, where your giftedness outlasts your fruitfulness. And a telltale sign of that would be you're tired and you're weary and you're tempted to numb with things like opiates or fill in the blank. You see, God cares a lot more about our fruitfulness than He cares about our giftedness. And what we're seeking to do this morning and with this series as a whole is to proactively work against this very problem that I'm describing. Endurance athletes have to deal with this reality that is referred to as bonking. You familiar with the term bonking? It means you're completely depleted of nutrition. Your body starts to turn against itself you become things like dehydrated and malnourished in the midst of intense physical activity. 
And you want to know something about bonking? Once it starts to happen, it's too late. Your ride is over. Your run is over. Your event is over if you've bonked. What's the solution to bonking in an endurance race? To be proactive. To proactively hydrate. To proactively receive nutrition. Well, that's what we're doing. That's what we're doing in this series. And furthermore, I'll just say, that's what I hope we're doing all the time, whether we have an explicit series on this or not. But then this morning, this is definitely what we're doing in John 15. We're seeking nutrition. We're seeking hydration. We're seeking God's grace and His Spirit to fill us in order to have energy. In order to be able to rest. In order to be fruitful, not simply productive. In order to be faithful, not simply successful. Because you see, faithfulness and fruitfulness are much higher callings than success and productivity. They're also much deeper callings. Why? Because they're eternal callings. So let's get to it. How do we actually manifest this fruitfulness that God has called us to? Well, did you catch the key word in John 15 that is repeated throughout these 11 verses? We are called to be fruitful, and the way in which we will be fruitful is this word and this concept that I actually think if we're going to say, give me one word of what it means to know God. Give me one word of what it means to walk with God. Give me one word of what it means to be fruitful. The one word I would offer is abide. Fruitfulness in our life comes through abiding. And abiding in the Greek literally means to find our home in. Isn't that beautiful? Abiding means to find our home in, to find our rest in, to find our identity in. So if an overarching way, our call in this life, our purpose is to be fruitful according to John 15. And if fruitfulness comes to this concept of abiding, then the next question is, what does it mean to abide? Interestingly enough, I think abiding can be summarized in three ways. Could have guessed that, right? In John 15, we're called to fruitfulness. Fruitfulness comes through abiding. What does it mean to abide? I think it means to identify with Christ. I think it means to depend on Christ. And it means to love Christ. So fruitfulness is going to come through these three ways as we capture this concept of abiding. Let's look first at what it means to identify with Christ, or another way of saying it would be to find our identity in Christ. And what we see in John 15 here in the beginning is Jesus speaking, and what Jesus is doing initially here is he's discussing relational dynamics between the Trinity. He's speaking about the Father and the Son, and those whom the Father has called the Son to be in union with. This is spiritual relational dynamics 101. And he even gives analogies, illustrations. The Father, he's the master gardener. He's the vine dresser. The Son, Jesus himself, is the vine. And then Christ's people, his followers, us, are the branches. We must identify with Christ if we want to abide 
And we must abide if we want to be fruitful. And it's important for us to realize that fruitfulness begins with relating with God. Finding our home in Him. Identifying with Him and having Him identify with us. J.I. Packer says, no matter how much you think you know about Christianity, if the most prevailing thought that you have about Christianity is not seeing God as Father and you as His Son, then you don't understand Christianity very well at all. It's important for us to understand this concept of finding our identity in God through the relationship that He's brought us into with the Son. The Father is the vine dresser, the Son is the vine, and we are the branches who identify ourselves with Him as He identifies Himself with us, as we find our identity in Him. That's where abiding begins. It begins in relationship. But before we move on to what it looks like to depend on Christ, which I believe is pretty much the pivotal point of abiding, it would be helpful for us to consider the things that we often identify with that are not God the things that we often find identity in that are not God. And they're really related to a lot of the things that I mentioned as we started. We find identity in things that give us power and control and comfort and approval. Things like our job or our gifts or our talents or our children or our relationships or our material possessions. It's as if we look at these people and these other things in our life and we make a demand on them. Listen to this. We make demands on other people and other things. And the demand is a demand for identity and identification. And it sounds something like this. Tell me who I am. Every Monday morning when you clock in, are you looking at your job and saying, tell me who I am? Are you looking at other people to define who you are? That's not just true for middle schoolers or kids, right? In this way, all of life is junior high, as Tom Brokaw famously said in a myriad of commencement speeches. Why? Because we want to be loved. We want to be accepted. We want other people to identify us. We want other people and other things and possessions and jobs and power and control to tell us who we are. I do the same thing. Let's just ask ourselves, how's that going? What are they saying to us? Our identity is meant to be rooted in a relationship with God first and foremost. And then actually, and this is what's beautiful about the gospel, is that it's liberating, it's not constrictive. Through a relationship with God, we can actually have proper relationship with those other things. If we don't make the monstrous substitution that Paul warns us about in Romans 1 by exchanging the created for the creator, if we don't do that and we actually accept God for who he is as a creator, then guess what happens with all those things that are in creation? We can actually enjoy them. We can identify them correctly because we're not demanding of them to tell us who we are. Because God is the only one that can tell us ultimately who we are. Why? Because he made us. And he loves us. And so that's what it means to abide, first of all. But secondly, 
If we're going to be fruitful, we must abide. And if we're going to abide, we not only find our identity or identify with God, we also must depend on Him. And as I said, I think this is the real pivotal and even climactic point of this passage, at least for our purposes this morning, really summarized in verses 4 through 5. So I would encourage you to look back at verses 4 through 5 in your bulletin as it talks about depending on God in the way that Christ Himself did. Abide in me and I in you, verse 4. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. So this is very straightforward. If you want to be fruitful, if you want to be meaningful, if you want to really know who you are, abide. Abide in me. Verse 5, For I am the vine and you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. Now, if there's not resistance in your mind and in your heart to that, I'm not sure you're awake. Apart from me, you can do nothing. Mm, I don't know about that, Jesus. Have you seen my schedule? Have you seen my phone? Have you seen my bank account? Have you seen my house? Have you seen my car? Have you seen my track record? In industry? Have you seen my children? Looks like I can do a lot. Can you? Are you? Are you sure? Essentially, what Jesus is saying apart from me, you can do nothing that has significance and eternal weight and value. I think that's really what he means. But here's the truth just practically and literally. He made you. You can't do anything I just named without, mm, I don't know, let's just make this easy, oxygen. Do you manufacture oxygen for yourself? Apart from Christ, we literally, but even more importantly, spiritually and eternally can do nothing. Which is a hard admission. It seems today in our culture at large, there's hardly anything that you cannot say. Nothing, it seems, is anathema today. Except maybe this. When's the last time you said openly, unapologetically, I can't? Blank. I'm unable. I'm incapable. That's outside the boundaries and the limits that God has given me as a human being. I'm sorry, no. Those are hard words to say. Because our lives are built around being self-sufficient. They're built around productivity and they're built around success. But God's economy is different. It's built around fruitfulness and faithfulness. And fruitfulness and faithfulness comes through abiding. And abiding comes through depending. It comes through embracing this reality. Apart from Christ, we can do nothing. It comes like every day when we wake up, confessing maybe before we get out of bed, God, help me today to believe apart from you, I can do nothing. 
Would that not be freeing and liberating to some degree? It will allow us to rest. And interestingly enough, it would actually produce fruit and faithfulness and things that actually matter like eulogy virtues based upon this idea of dependence. And of course, as we looked at last week, we've got an amazing model for dependence in the Scriptures. His name is Jesus. And the hermeneutic is how much more. If Jesus needed, according to Isaiah 50, morning by morning to awaken his ear as one who was taught so that he made a sustain those who were weary with the word. If Jesus needed morning by morning to awaken his ear, to hear as one who was taught in order to do life, then how much more do we, who are obviously not Jesus, can we admit that, need morning by morning to awaken our ear as one who is taught in dependence. Jesus himself in John chapter 5 explicitly at two different points says, the Son can do nothing apart from the will of the Father. And that's true about Jesus, who by the way is God. Then how much more is that true of us? Christ depends. We are called to depend Of course, there's a lot of application that could be made on what it looks like to depend on God. Some of them have already been said the last couple weeks. I'll reiterate them to some degree, but open up another concept. And the concept would be this concept of Sabbath rest. Sabbath rest is a proclamation and a practice of dependence. It's something that we incorporate into our lives on a regular daily basis in which we hear from God, in which God speaks tenderly to us, in which we remove the external chaos from our life, and we hear God speak to us through stillness and solitude, through meditation and prayer, through things like the historic practice of Lectio Divina, sacred reading, where we take just a verse, maybe just a word, and pray through and think about and reflect deeply on that verse for a week. That would be a way to depend. Another way to depend and practice Sabbath rest would be what we're doing right here. Sabbath proper, if you will. Sabbath in general, and then Sabbath proper. A former pastor who was a mentor to me said this about the Sabbath day, apart from exactly how it's supposed to be prescribed. He at least says this, the Sabbath should be dedicated, it should be distinctive, and it should be delightful. I'm not here to prescribe exactly what your Sundays should look like. It's not my job. I do think it's accurate to say that your Sundays, your Sabbath, should incorporate these three concepts with regularity. It should be dedicated. It should be distinctive from other days. And it should be delightful. Why? Because we need it. Once again, God rested. Might be a good cue for us to rest in Him as Christ depended on Him. And then lastly, 
for our purposes this morning. If we want to live a life in which, and that is fruitful, we must abide. And abiding, we're seeing, has this idea of identifying or finding our identity in Christ specifically. It also entails depending on Christ. And then lastly, really answers the question, how in the world are we going to do this? We're going to do it through love. Did you see this specifically in verses 9 and 10? Look at that with me. Abiding comes through loving Christ. Verse 9. As the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Even Jesus, by the way, speaks of having a responsive love. So the Father initiates love. And then Jesus responds in love to the love that the Father has initiated. So the Father has loved me, I love you, and then therefore you abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandment and abide in His, once again, love. Abiding ends with, ultimately, this idea of loving. How will we be fruitful? How will we abide? How will we identify with and find our identity? And how will we depend? It'll all happen through love. But did you catch this? This will not all happen through your love. And this is where the gospel speaks loud and clear to us. And this is where the gospel is distinctive. And this is where it's good news, not good advice. Because you see, it'd be very easy for us at this point to make this application. I want to be fruitful. In order to be fruitful, I must abide. In order to abide, at least Brent says, I must identify with God and I must depend on Christ. And then lastly, I must love Him. Just like Jesus. He's an amazing example. But if Jesus is only an example, He's a crushing burden. Because who is like Jesus? You see, fruitfulness and abiding does happen through those things that we've just mentioned, but the fuel of that is not our love, but it's God's love in Christ. Did you hear Jesus' proclamation here? Yes, you're called to keep my commandments. Part of keeping my commandments will be to live a fruitful life, but let me tell you, you're going to keep commandments. I have kept the commandments, Jesus says. We've got to see Jesus in this passage not simply as an example, but we must see Him as a Savior. Not only does Jesus show us how to abide and how to be fruitful, get this, the good news of the gospel is, Jesus saves us from the reality that we're not fruitful, that we don't abide, that we don't identify with Him, and that we don't depend on Him. And He loves us anyway. And through that love counterintuitively, it allows us to do the very things that we're not doing. And that's the news of the gospel. The hymn we're going to sing in just a minute is one of my favorites. I know it's beloved of others in the room as well. It was written in the 19th century by Henry Light. It's our communion hymn. If you want to go ahead and turn there, it's the next hymn that we will sing collectively together. Henry Light wrote this in the 19th century, in Great Britain. He wrote this hymn in conjunction with the last sermon that he ever preached in his longtime parish as he was dying 
of tuberculosis. He writes this. And this is written as a prayer. It's written as a prayer from a dying, needy man to God, asking him to be with him. And do you remember the definition of abide? To find our home in? And yes, we are personally to find our home in God. But this song is not talking about us finding our home in God. This song is about God, listen, finding his home in us. It's a prayer asking God not for us to abide with him, but it's a prayer asking God to abide with us. This hymn is actually still played daily at his home church in Brixham, England. And it goes like this. Abide with me. Fast falls the tide. The darkness deepens. Lord, with me abide. When other helpers fail and comforts flee, help of the helpless. Abide with me. Thou on my head, early youth, did smile. And though rebellious and perverse meanwhile, listen to this, thou hast not left me as often as I have left thee. Onto the close, O Lord, abide with me. I need thy presence every passing hour. What by thy grace can foil the tempter's power? Who like thyself my guide and stay can be through cloud and sunshine, Lord, abide with me. Hold thou thy cross before my closing eyes. Shine through the gloom and point me to the skies. Heaven's morning breaks and earth's vain shadows flee. And life and death, O Lord, abide with me. That's our prayer. Let's pray. Father, we do simply pray this morning that you would abide with us. We pray through you abiding with us that we would live lives that are meaningful. We do pray for fruitfulness. You've given us that desire. You've given us the desire to make a mark. But I pray, Father, that you would redirect our hearts and our minds to the type of mark we are seeking to make. I pray that all of us collectively and then each of us individually would leave a legacy that would be indicative of what David Brooks calls a eulogy virtue. In order to do that, we need your grace and we need your love. We thank you that your legacy is one of abiding love. We pray that you would transfer to us that abiding love and that our lives would slowly but surely be different. Help us to rest in you, and it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.